please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians as we continue in our uh, series in that book that we're calling Life Together. Paul is bringing a good word to the church and we're listening in that we might also learn well. So 1 Corinthians verse 1, we will be in verse 10. Uh, chapter 1, we'll be in verse 10 in just a minute. There's been a lot of talk this week. Some of you have brought it up. This inaugural week about unity. From the new president, from those who ran against him, from the person on the street being interviewed, there have been calls for our country to unite. Even as protesters took to the street a few blocks away from those who were lined up to celebrate the new administration, We've been called to find a common place where we can live so we can move forward as one nation. Now, this is a huge undertaking. As a country, we have a history of enjoying the freedom that we've been given while working for the ideals that each one of us believe will make our nation better. We place ourselves in political parties or groups with which we identify so that we can forward a certain set of values. So where then is the unity to be found? All of us come with varied experience of what it means to be American. Some quite positive and others full of hardship. So where do we find common ground? Through identity markers of background or social status or color of our skin? Through our beliefs of what role government should play in our lives or from the Constitution? The founding document that got us all started, even the people who drafted it had a hard time agreeing. There's a belief, I think, sometimes that as more time goes on, the more that we're going to figure out how to live better together. That as a humanity, we're finally going to learn the lessons from our past and be able to live in harmony instead of discord. But how do we live in unity when we completely disagree? And is disagreeing the issue? Or is it how we treat one another in our disagreements? That we live in a climate of hateful rhetoric. Where so many different people on all sides engage in saying unbelievable things about one another. Where wounds and fears and distrust run deep, festering over years, over generations. What has happened The civil discourse. Did we ever have it? I don't know. How can we keep working to make our nation stronger? Now, I bring all of this up because, providentially perhaps, ironically maybe, the passage that we are about to read, Paul is appealing to the believers at Corinth to not be divided. He is calling the church to oneness. Because their divisions are threatening to rip apart the fabric of their community if they don't make some different decisions and how they treat one another. Paul appeals to them on a few different levels so they might be able to again make progress in what the Lord has for them to do and be. This is a passage about the church. And for us in this country, it's a timely reminder of how people who call themselves by the name of Christ should act and treat one another. 
So let us read together 1 Corinthians 1, 1, starting in verse 10. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you will be in agreement and there will be no divisions among you, but that you will be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I love that. Let me think about that for a second. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God, we thank you for the message of the cross. And this morning, we thank you for your word. And we ask, God, that it is living and alive. And as your spirit is with us, Lord, that you would speak and your people are listening. Amen. Last week, we talked about how Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church because he needs to have a difficult conversation with them. There are many problems for him to correct, and he begins first by focusing in on the topic of unity, which makes sense because it's the basis for the rest of the letter. If there is not a commitment to work things out, however arduous the work might be, then there's not going to be a reason to talk about the other issues because they will simply cease to exist. Paul knows what's been happening because of some people who had visited the church. They were from the house of Chloe, a woman who lived in Ephesus. These people, possibly servants, had been in Corinth and worshipped with the believers there. When they went back to Ephesus where Paul was, they reported to him what they experienced. Have you ever been in a church and just felt that something was not right? Have you been part of a body were factions ripped apart, what was happening there, the good work that was being done that becomes the focus. It is so hard to be in those situations. And whatever happened, they went back and told Paul, there is something not right there. And here are the things that we saw. We can see kind of what's going on, although Paul does not spell it out. There's fighting. There are allegiances that are being taken. People are being elevated because of their beliefs or their gifts. And Paul is exhorting them that they have to keep their life together intact. So this morning, let's talk about how Paul appeals to the believers for unity. I've distilled it into three main ideas, although there are many layers here in what is being said. So Paul appeals to the believers to find agreement. And he asks them to center on Christ. He tells them appeals to them by telling them to stop quarreling 
And he appeals for unity by telling them to recall the deep symbols of their faith. So, Paul first begins with Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And in verse 10, he appeals in the name of Jesus. He bolsters his appeal by beginning with the name of Jesus. And I was thinking about how we say prayers in the name of Jesus. And we ask for protection and raise our hands in the name of Jesus. We come to faith in this name. We call ourselves by this name. We ask for healing and guidance. We hope in the name of Jesus. He is the basis of all we do. This morning we asked Jesus be the center. So by calling them to unity in the name that is above all names, Paul is identifying the authority by which he speaks. This is not Paul's idea. Unity comes from Christ. And what does Paul say about Christ? Well, Paul says, Jesus is not divided. In membership class, we've been talking about how over the centuries of the church, believers disagree with one another throughout history. Sometimes that has led to schisms and breaks in the church. Sometimes the church has been made stronger. Sometimes the Lord has used it to bring correction because the church was headed down the wrong way. And while the divisions might have led to good growth, let's be clear, these divisions do not originate with God. In verse 13, Paul says, has Christ been divided? Clearly, they are fighting among themselves, but Paul wants them to stop and look and see who is standing in their midst. Jesus is always whole. Let's stop and think about that for a minute. Let's ponder the idea that although the church is in different kind of pieces and bifurcations and has different kinds of looks, Jesus is always whole. The church has had a long history Sometimes there has been a lot of fighting, and sometimes there's been all-out war. And those things have occurred because humanity has been trying to work out what they believe. And how it is that they're going to move forward, and what the church should be. Some of the disputes have been righteous, and some have been evil and wrong. But in all of it, Christ stands in the midst of his people as the risen Lord I think sometimes grieving, I think sometimes empowering and reminding people and giving grace, but still Christ is whole. The right of the father, however division happens, it is not the will or the work of Jesus. It is always us because we're broken and we don't always know how to make unity work. And sometimes we exert our will over the will of God. Paul calls them brothers and sisters twice here. And as he does that, he's reminding them of their family status. They aren't strangers. They're siblings. They're family who are connected. Now, we know that just because people share the same DNA, it doesn't mean that they're close. Certainly doesn't mean that there's oneness and thought and purpose. However, when we attend a large family gathering, our hope Is it the strength of family, the bond that holds us together, the experiences we've had, the things that make us family, override the differences that might drive us apart? 
brothers and sisters in the Lord, Paul says, adopted into God's family, brought together by the sacrifice of Christ, he says, be united with one mind and the same purpose. Today, I love the quote on the front of the bulletin. Each week, we've been providing a thought for you to think about that goes with the sermon theme. And the quote this week we chose comes from Johnny Erickson Tata. Here's what she says. Believers are never told to become one because we already are one and we are expected to act like it. Christ has made the church one body, bound by a bigger reality than what we each individually desire or think is best. And so Paul calls for unity based on the person and the work of Christ. Secondly, Paul is dispirited to hear that there are quarrels among them. We cannot find unity of purpose when so much energy is spent fighting. They are arguing over whom they belong to. And there's a list of four names here. Now, it's not clear to scholars exactly what's going on in this situation. None of the people mentioned were ongoing leaders in that church. None of them had marked differences with one another. And none of them are involved in what's happening here. Paul is their founding leader. Of course, he has a huge influence. Apollos was an intellectual dynamic leader who worked with Priscilla and Aquila. He assisted the church for a time. We know Cephas is the disciple Peter. Maybe he represents Jewish Christianity. And then Christ is listed, which is curious. It's not really understood why unless those who say, well, you know, you all belong to those people, but we belong to Jesus. We're the only true believers. Not quite sure what's going on there. But whatever's happening, they are choosing influential names of leaders to pit one another against each other. So let's just talk for a few minutes about that. I think that as humans, we are prone to divisiveness. I think it's part of our broken nature to build coalitions with those that we're drawn to or agree with against those that we don't like and don't agree with. We can then condemn those that we disagree with as though their viewpoint has no merit. In this way, our views stay intact and superior because we don't have to reason with the people when we're making them wrong. In the church, I think this can be a form of idolatry. When people are elevated over the Lord or when our viewpoints are more highly thought of than one's neighbor. Let me say that in a different way. When our opinion is more important than a human being, that's a problem. We're called to love one another as we love ourselves. This is why splits happen so easily when we don't take the time to really reconcile and work together. We forget to love. Notice what Paul does not do here. He does not try to persuade his listeners to his way of thinking. If this was about whose theology was correct, he easily could have said, well, remember those who belong to me, remember your right. He doesn't do that. He adds himself to the list of those to whom people should not be identifying with in a primary way. He points them to Christ, reminding them what's most important. This isn't an election. This is the body of Christ. Where people serve together, giving honor to one another over themselves, with Jesus as the head. 
Paul is telling them Christianity is not another philosophy to be added to the rest of everything that's going on in Corinth. There aren't like certain schools of thought where you follow certain leaders. This is the church. This is meant to be an altogether different kind of community. This kind of behavior has unfortunately been too prevalent in the church over the centuries. Last week we talked a little bit about the atrocities that the church has committed in the name of Jesus outside of its walls. But how about inside of its walls? How many times have Christians taken the lives of those who did not believe exactly as some thought they should? How many times have Protestants and Catholics been fighting? How many times has the power structure oppressed those who did not conform? How many times have people not allowed to be free in Christ? How many times has the church been divided because they could not come together in oneness? How much of our witness do we lose when we say even jokingly, well, I don't even know if the people who go to that church are saved. It's when we close ourselves off to thinking that anyone else's branch of Christianity has any merit that we do damage. It's true that as Christians, we choose a theological focus of our lives that best represent what we believe about God. In this church, we're free Methodist. This is a denomination. But this isn't the only true church. This is one part of a big, beautiful, vibrant church. And God is with us, but God is with congregations all over this city and all over this nation. That's why we pray for different churches in our bulletin every week. Today we're praying for our brothers and sisters who are meeting together on Hollister. There's not one part of the body that can claim we are the only true faith. If we subscribe to that idea that we have become what Paul is writing against. Remember, Christ is not divided. He is Lord over the church with its various traditions and vibrant streams. Paul calls for unity by simply reminding the church to stop fighting. Thirdly, Paul appeals to them by mentioning the deep symbols of the faith. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? By talking about baptism and the crucifixion, he is highlighting two important aspects of Christianity that are tools of transformation brought by the Lord himself. No human can meet us in that supernatural joining of the sacraments of baptism and communion. These experiences that we participate in help us to stay unified with Christ and with one another in an ongoing way. Paul has a curious conversation here about baptism, kind of little stream of consciousness that we that we uh, laughed about, where he can't really recall who it was that he baptized. In it, though, he's calling people to remember their baptism. He's saying, "Whose name were you baptized?" And then people stop and they think about their baptism. Where were you baptized? Who was it that baptized you? In our tradition, we go down to the biggest body of water in the world, the Pacific Ocean, and we baptize people. And we ask them, is there someone that you would like 
to help baptize you. It doesn't have to be a pastor. A pastor is not like more special than anybody else. The Lord is the one who is going to meet you. And so sometimes people have their mom or their dad, or sometimes they might have a pastor who's been particularly important to them. And as pastors, we don't take that personally. If someone wants Pastor Doug to baptize them, great. That's awesome because they have a special relationship with him. But that relationship isn't the point of the baptism itself. That's a sacred action where Christ is meeting that person. It's signaling a true commitment to the Lord. It's meaningful to have people help us. And Paul said, I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't baptize more of you so that you can't claim me as your special status. Paul then goes on to talk about the cross of Christ. When we follow leaders in the church because of how well they speak, which is what Paul is talking about in verse 17, he says, the cross is emptied of its power. How easy is it for us to flock to great speakers or pastors or preachers because they make us think, because they entertain us, even if they bring us closer to the Lord? It's a danger, Paul says, when we put them on a pedestal, when we have a church popularity contest, he says, the gospel is diminished. Whatever they're doing there, however they're elevating certain leaders, Paul says you're emptying the cross of Christ of its power. Emptied here means to dwindle to nothing, to vanish. Paul is telling them, don't seek eloquence. Be persuaded by the very fact that Christ was crucified for you. In that way, we keep unity because our focus stays on God. Jesus told us in this life that he, his very presence in our lives would divide those who followed him. When we put our faith in Christ, those who disagree with his teaching, it's hard for us to have unity with people who don't follow Jesus But the cross of Christ should bring together those who love him and trust him. The message of the cross, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But the message of the cross is a lifeline to those who are being saved. The message of the cross is reconciliation with one another and God. The message of the cross is death to sin and self. It's sacrificial love given for all. It's new and abundant life in the spirit. We don't benefit by how well that message is spoken. We benefit because of the power of God was given for our souls. Paul calls for unity by reminding the church that we are rooted in the sacramental life and moments with Christ. So unity, difficult to achieve. It's more than just ignoring our differences. It is truly seeking to live a common life with one another. It's being attentive to one another in a way that communicates. We want to understand one another and hear one another, even at the end of the day, if we can't agree. Because we are more important to one another than our values. It's believing that we're not right about everything and trenching in so hard that we're unwilling to see life from a different perspective. Is it possible in this life? In some places, for certain, maybe, yes. It takes work in our country, in the church, in our homes, wherever we go. 
But unity is one of the realities that Christ came to give. And as his people, we can bring some principles and some love and some presence to the table wherever we go. We don't have to foster disunity. Right before his arrest, Jesus prays that all those who follow him would be one in him. That is how he prayed for you and for me, that we would be one. So how are we trusting him to make that true? Let us pray.